Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm here with a wonderful group of actors that are going to lead us on our way through Act 3 of King Henry IV Part 2. We ended um, Act 2 of King Henry IV Part 2 in our last session with an epic tavern scene complete with a brawl, much insulting, a couple prostitutes and uh, a lot of fun. Um, and now we make a big shift from, from that tavern to the bedchambers of the king of the realm, who is having trouble sleeping. Go call the earls of Surrey and of Warwick. But ere they come, bid them all read these letters and well consider of them. Make good speed. How many thousand of my poorest subjects are at this hour asleep? Oh, sleep. Oh, gentle sleep, nature's soft nurse, how have I frighted thee, that thou no more wilt weigh my eyelids down and steep my senses in forgetfulness? Why rather, sleep, liest thou in smoky cribs upon uneasy pallets stretching thee and hushed with buzzing nightflies to thy slumber than in the perfumed chambers of the great under the canopies of costly state and lulled with sound of sweetest melody. O thou dull god, why liest thou with the vile in loathsome beds, and leavest the kingly couch a watch-case or a common larum bell? Wilt thou upon the high and giddy mast seal up the ship-boy's eyes, and rock his brains in cradle of the rude imperious surge, and in the visitation of the winds? who take the ruffian billows by the top, curling their monstrous heads and hanging them with deafing clamor in the slippery clouds, that with the hurly death itself awakes? Canst thou, O partial sleep, give thy repose to the wet sea's sun in an hour so rude, and in the calmest and most stillest night with all appliances and means to boot, deny it to a king? Then happy low, lie down. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Wonderful, let's just pause there because what a remarkable speech. Um, I, I, I love the theme in um, so many of the history plays that, that kings can't sleep. There is, a, there is a, a theme through a lot of Shakespeare's plays of, of kings not being able to sleep. And uh, in fact, uh, Henry's son, when he becomes Henry V on the eve of battle, has a remarkable, um, a remarkable speech about the cares of the king being so overwhelming, and and I think is one of the the first um, wonderfully articulated uh, speeches about that weird imposter syndrome <laughs> sensation that we sometimes get when we're given big responsibility and not quite sure how we got it. Um, mm. But um, Eric, tell us about, about the experience of, of, of reading this, this speech and, and just any, any observations about the character. It's kind of extraordinary. It's, the play has his name in the title and we don't see him until act three. Yes, yes. Well, uh, he is not a happy man. We mm. hear from him uh, some bitterness about uh, how unfair life is to kings. 
Mm-hmm. It's uh, Mel Brooks could say it's hard to be the king. <laughs> uh, it's, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, he's not, uh, we'll find out in his next speech how much uh, pessimism he has, how, how, how little he feels he has to look forward to, how little he feels anyone has to look forward to. Um, Things are closing in, Uh, he's worn out, Uh, he's ill. I don't know if, I don't know if he knows how ill he is, but he will be dead soon. Um, (laughs) The the image of the ship boy uh, up on the mast being able to enjoy sleep. Now that one puzzled me a little because I thought, well, he'll be a, he's a goner then. He'll fall down out of the yeah. map. And that's the end of him. But I guess it's just, uh, you know, another uh, who's further away from the power and the privilege of a king than somebody whose life is at risk, a little boy whose life is at risk on the top of a mast of a ship in a storm. And he gets the benefit of sleep. Um, yes. Yeah, so this this uh, is is uh, for me quite an introduction to this character. Absolutely, and and we've we've gotten some hints uh, that the king is not well, that that he's ill. Mm-hmm. Yes. We've gotten some hints from um, <laughs> of all people, Falstaff. Um, uh, in the first time we see him, and then further with the Lord Chief Justice, and also then further with. Prince Hal speaking to Poins about his father being ill. So we know that he is sick. It's never really quite explained what he is sick with. Um, I'm sure they didn't even know what he was sick with. Probably, yeah. You're probably right. We know a little more now than they did then. But, yeah. Uh... <laughs> he had COVID. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it is. It is a wonderful speech. One of the things that I do when I do script analysis is uh, always one of the first things. One of the first things I try after after doing the sort of rhythmic scansion is to try and pick out all of the antitheses um, mm-hmm. because to me that's that's such an important part as what what ideas are being set against each other because it's just mm-hmm. the most Shakespearean thing possible. And this sure does have a lot of antitheses in it, the speech, just the, the big one being obviously that the king can't sleep while his lowliest subjects can. And yes. that sleep is not attending to him as would be expected for a king to have attendance, but is instead attending upon this poor little ship boy who's racked in a storm, who's somehow able to, to find uh, peace even in the chaos. And he's in this beautiful perfumed chamber, probably with musicians playing and everything is quiet and still and peaceful and he still can't sleep. Um, I, I, I particularly, I know I, I mention it, I've mentioned it probably in all the radio plays we've done so far, dear listeners, but I, I always find uh, important words in Shakespeare um, there's a series of words in Shakespeare that tend to be very important, which are where there's a word that begins with un. Um, so uneasy, unkissed, um, undone. These words always are very big, I have found in Shakespeare. And there's a sense, there's a yearning always for me in these words of being let in, 
of, of being included. And I, I always found, find that they have a, a, a tug on the audience and the character um, when they're spoken. And I think uneasy lies the head. You're yearning for this easiness. It's, it's, very, um, it's very powerful. So then we have the Earls of Surrey and Warwick enter. Poor Earl of Surrey just kind of stands there and doesn't say anything for the whole rest of the scene. It's kind of a not not great a uh, not great character. Uh, <laughs> but and I don't think the Earl of Surrey ever has any lines. But you know, well, be that as it may. Um, in comes Warwick and Surrey, and they um, they're going to have a, an interaction here with the king as it is w one in the morning, which is perhaps not the most common time to have a meeting with the king. Many good morrows to your majesty. Is it good morrows, lords? Tis one o'clock and past. Why then, good morrow to you all, my, my lords. Have you read all the letters that I sent you? We have, my liege. Then you, then you perceive the body of our kingdom, how foul it is, what rank diseases grow, and with what danger near the heart of it. It is but a body yet distempered, which to his former strength may be restored with good advice and little medicine. My Lord Northumberland will soon be cooled. Oh, God that one might read the book of fate and see the revolution of the times make mountains level and the continent, weary of solid firmness, melt itself into the sea and other times to see the beachy girdle of the ocean too wide for Neptune's hips. How chances mock and changes fill the cup of alteration with diverse liquors. Oh, if this were seen, the happiest youth viewing his progress through, what perils past, what crosses to ensue, would shut the book and sit him down and die. Tis not ten years gone since Richard and Northumberland, great friends, did feast together, and in two years after were they at wars. It is but eight years since this Percy was the man nearest my soul, who, like a brother, toiled in my affairs, and laid his love and life under my foot. Yea, for my sake, even to the eyes of Richard, gave him defiance. But which of you was by? Uh, you, Cousin Neville, as I may remember, when Richard, with his eye brimful of tears, then checked and rated by Northumberland, did speak these words, now proved a prophecy? Northumberland, thou ladder by the which my cousin Bolingbroke ascends my throne, though then, God knows I had no such intent, but that necessity so bowed the state that I and greatness were compelled to kiss. The time shall come, thus did he follow it, the time will come that foul sin, gathering head, shall break into corruption. So went on foretelling this same time's condition and the division of our amity. There is a history in all men's lives, figuring the natures of the times deceased. The witch observed, a man may prophesy with a near aim of the main chance of things, as yet not to come to life, who in their seeds and weak beginning lie in treasure it. Such things become the hatch and brood of time. 
and by the necessary form of this, King Richard might create a, a perfect guess that great Northumberland then falls to him would of that seed to a greater grow to a greater falseness, which should not find a ground to root upon unless on you. Are these things then necessities? Then let us meet them like necessities. And that same word even now cries out on us. They say the bishop in Northumberland are 50,000 strong. It cannot be, my lord. Rumor doth double like the voice and echo the numbers of the feared. Please it, your grace, to go to bed. Upon my soul, my lord, the powers that you already have sent forth shall bring this prize in very easily. To comfort you the more, I have received a certain instance that Glendower is dead. Your majesty hath been this fortnight ill, and these unseasoned hours perforced must add unto your sickness. I will take your counsel. And were these inward wars once out of hand, we would, dear lords, unto the Holy Land. Oh, man. Wow. Um, poor King Henry. He just wants to go kill some pagans. <laughs> That's all he wants to do. <laughs> all he's That's ever wanted. Yeah. He just wants a good old-fashioned crusade where he can kill foreigners. <laughs> he just is so sick of civil wars. Um, <laughs> I always find that a little bit little bit deeply and profoundly cynical but th that's that's that uh, it is what it is i i want to have a brief uh, a mourning period for glendower one of my favorite shakespearean characters mm. who is one of the more talked about characters who only appears in one scene and makes a very big impression and historically was kind of this welsh folk hero who rebelled against king henry for eight summers in a row and was never defeated he was quite, quite a remarkable figure in sort of Welsh history. So uh, Liam, tell me about Warwick, which I think Shakespeare may have confused with Northumberland when writing this, because Ralph Neville is the name of the Earl of Westmoreland. So I'm not quite sure why he calls this one Neville, unless they were both called Neville, which would be kind of strange. And Westmoreland does appear in this play, but not until Act Four. So W, Earl's. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's all the same, huh? um, tell me, Liam, uh, tell me about Warwick. What are your yeah, impressions I, of him? I mean, I, I get the sense that he's just been, you know, like, like, you know, we're, you know, it seems like, you know, of course, John and uh, what is uh, Westmoreland and like, you know, his typical right hand man are off, off, you know, doing their thing now but uh so i feel like warwick's sort of like stepped in a little bit he's here i i feel like he's he's been like the guy you know standing outside you know waiting and you know doing whatever the king needs he's like the the good nurse you know yes. uh and then uh and then yeah and he's here to here to counsel him if he needs him yeah. he's Just, a good counselor i think he is he's he's he, very conciliatory and, and, and yeah, and, and you know, more perceptive than Lord Bardolph, you know, <laughs> he doesn't fall for the trap of rumors, unlike uh, someone. Yes, and it's interesting. He actually even mentions rumor here, which is right. notable because rumor appeared to us as a character at the beginning of the play. Um, and he's he's urging caution, right? A very 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 sensible thing to do, and 
And he sort of has these wonderful balances for the king's worst fears. Um, I can't help but hear an, an echo of the archbishop's speech in Act One about the land being diseased with um, this, this, this line on, on, on page 52, the body of our kingdom, how foul it is, what rank diseases grow. It seems to be kind of a, a, a theme on, on both sides, not just one side perceiving, perceiving that. Um, and the other note that I, that I wrote down was how very close this paraphrase of what Richard said in Richard II is to the actual lines in Richard II, which is only remarkable because um, Henry Bolingbroke wasn't in that scene. <laughs> he was not in that scene. So I really wanna know how he knew this so, so, so very, so very deeply and so very well. Perhaps Shakespeare wrote it and just, wrote him a letter with it and <laughs> then he knew he knew about it but it is very striking how uh very close but not exact these these words are to what richard actually said to northumberland um he did call him oh, there's a ladder always there's always rumor oh there's always rumor i bet it was rumor thank you amber it, it must have been rumor <laughs> Eric, did you did you have any other observations about about the king? He's sort of he seems to me someone who lives in the past a lot. Um, that was well, my other observation. His present is not very good as he sees it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Things are uh, worse present. Uh, God knows I had no such intent. Well, please. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, politics. He's a he's a politician. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the, this is the polarized politics of those days. Absolutely. Uh, each side is characterizing the other as an illness on the state. Mm. Um, well, he's he's uh, he's not a happy man, and he's an angry man. Yeah, and I think that's very important for for the next time we see him and his encounter with Hal. He's he's an angry man. He's he's not happy. He's not contented. Um, he has a remarkable amount of water imagery um, from the, the ship boy and Neptune in the ocean. And yeah. I think it is also just important to note that he associates himself with water in Richard II. Um, uh, uh, Mike was, was Bolingbroke for us in, that, in, the, uh, in Richard II. And there was, there's a whole bit, isn't there, about the um, be he the fire, I'll be the, the yielding water. Um, oh yeah. So there, there's an interesting through line for me in terms of the, his association with with water and water imagery, um, and and Richard always is the sun and fire, and then of course Hal says at the beginning of part one he's going to imitate the sun, and he mm -hmm. is constantly compared to Richard by Henry. So there's an interesting little relationships that happen along um, along the. Element, on the elemental level, as it were, um, with these characters. So Warwick also, just in terms of plot, seems to feel quite confidently that the force of Westmoreland and Lancaster is going to be more than sufficient to quash the Archbishop and, the, and Northumberland, which I think is interesting um, mm -hmm. because they, the rebels were very confident that they could probably have some gain against yeah. that cohort. So um, 
I think it just adds more suspense when we get to act four of like, who's really going to, to have power in, um, in the scene. Were there, were there any other, any other thoughts or uh, questions about this, this first scene of act three? I just think it's interesting that he mentions the Holy land again. Yeah. That, I mean, that's how Richard II ends is him being like, let's go to the Holy land now. Yeah. And then he's talking about the Holy land and didn't, I remember you brought something up like for, the room that he dies in yes. was called Jerusalem. Yeah. Called the Jerusalem room. Yeah. It was, um, it was, it, he was prophesied to him when he was young, that he was going to die in Jerusalem and uh, in deepest, deepest irony of ironies, um, he dies and he discovers in this play that he's going to die in not Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem room in the palace. Wow. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's very deep, deep ironies going on. But he yeah. also begins Henry the Fourth, Part One, with a rousing, no more civil war. I'm done with civil war. Let's go to the Holy Land. <laughs> so um, <laughs> this is definitely a, a theme for him. And um, as, as was pointed out, in both Richard II and in um, our Henry IV part one uh, discussions, this is really, see his usurpation is kind of seen as the original sin of this dynasty. And it haunts these eight plays that are about the succession of kings that reigned from Richard II through until Henry VII. And this is the original sin that keeps coming back keeps cropping up on the the eve of the battle of Agincourt Hal now King Henry um basically makes a prayer in which he he uh sort of enumerates all of the different ways in which he's tried to repent for his father's sin of taking Richard's crown from him including having him reburied hiring a whole bunch of poor people to pray for him on a weekly basis, having a whole, like constructing a shrine for him. And he's just sitting there like listing all these things he just tried to do and says, I'll do more. Just please let us win this battle. And it's kind of, it's kind of extraordinary and it seems to pay off, but then of course everything goes downhill with his son and with the three Henry, the sixth plays, the kingdom is torn apart once again. And in, in just, thrown into civil war we have to get through another sin of richard the third and then we finally arise in the elizabethan mythology triumphant in the tudor period and henry the seventh is our savior the father of henry the eighth and he wasn't problematic at all <clears throat> thus history is is uh written by the conquerors as they say but it is it is amazing to me how how many times richard is is mentioned in this play even though he's been dead for quite some time, he, he definitely haunts um, this play and this king. He's like um, Jacob Marley. Very much, very much so, um, which is very much on brand for the, the, the timing <laughs> of this recording. <laughs> yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, I, I, there was the, the RSC's most recent production of the Richard II through Henry V plays. They had a remarkable moment at the top of their Henry IV part one where um, David Tennant had been Richard II and he had this remarkably long wig 
that his hair kind of went down to his knees. It was, it was quite extraordinary. And then at the top of Henry the fourth, part one, Henry was praying and this figure with very long hair appeared in the balcony in one of the audience and then it vanished and then he started with so shaken as we are and it was like he just saw Richard's ghost and that's why he was shaken it was very effective very effective moment um lots of eerie choral music in there too and they did the trick um anyway (laughs) So we've we've gone now. We've 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 had our our scenes with the rebels. We've been in the tavern, and that and now we've been in the court of the king. And that so far has covered the ground that we went over and all of the different worlds that we visited in Henry the Fourth Part One. In our next scene, we're going to be introduced to a totally different world that we didn't experience, which is the country, the quiet country life in England at this time and um, the delightful and one of my absolute favorite comedic characters justice robert shallow is going to appear and repeat many phrases and words and um yeah if i'll say as we do this first section that is if uh king henry the fourth's favorite uh, rhetorical device is antithesis uh, shallows is definitely repetition so with that let us start off with this section entitled death and livestock <laughs> come on come on come on sir give me your hand sir give me your hand sir an early stir by the rude and how doth my good cousin's silence tomorrow good cousin shallow and how doth my cousin your bedfellow and your fairest daughter and mine, my goddaughter, Ellen? Alas, a black oozle, cousin Shallow. Oh, right, yea. Oh, no, sir. I dare say my cousin William has become a good scholar. He is at Oxford still, is he not? Indeed, sir, to my cost. I uh, must then to the inns of court shortly. <laughs> I was once of Clement's Inn, where I think they will talk of mad shallow yet. <laughs> you were called lusty shallow then. Oh, 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 oh. By the mass, I was called anything. <laughs> and I would have done anything indeed too, and roundly too. There was I and little John Doit of Staffordshire and black George Barnes and Francis Pickbone and Will Squeal, a Cotswold man. You had not four such swinge bucklers in all the ends of court again. And I may say to you, we knew where the Bonarobas were. <laughs> and had the best of them all a commandment. Ah, then was Jack Falstaff. Now, Sir John, a boy and page to Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk. This Sir John cousin that comes hither anon about soldiers. Oh, the same, Sir John, the very same. <laughs> I saw him break Scoggin's head at the court gate when I was a crack, not the side. And the very same day did I fight with one Samson Stockfish, a fruiter behind Gray's Inn. 
Yesu, Yesu, the mad days that I have spent. And to see how many of my old acquaintance are dead. We shall all follow, cousin. Oh, certain, tis certain, very sure, very sure. Death, as the psalmist saith, is certain to all. All shall die. How oh, a good yoke of bullocks at Stamford Fair. By my troth, I was not there. Death is certain. Is old double of your town living yet? Dead, sir. Oh, Jesu, Jesu, dead. I oh, drew a good bow and dead. Ah, oh, he shot a fine shoot. John of God loved him well and betted much money on his head. Dead. He would have clapped in the clout at twelve score and carried you a forehand shaft a fourteen and a half. That could it have gone a man's heart good to see. How a score of yous now? Thereafter as they be, a score of good yous may be worth ten pounds. And is old double dead? Here come two of Sir John Falstaff's men, as I think. Wonderful. Let's just pause there and just have some initial thoughts on these amazing justices. Justice Shallow and Justice Silence. I just adore this little bit of this scene. I did a, a history plays workshop with um, some of the crows in in Santa Fe and I had two of my youngest actors do this this one and they were like eight and nine years old and it was it was pretty adorable with their little fake beards and everything but I, I just love this this mixing of like commerce with these profound thoughts about morality and like oh we're all gonna die how much do ox cost nowadays oh we're gonna die I mean they're just amazing turns amazing turns. Um, Amber, what is your uh, sort of feeling about Justice Shallow so far? Well, having grown up in a little town out in the middle of nowhere, uh, I heard a lot about these people <laughs> at the uh, summer stock show. Oh, yeah, we could have gone on and on and on about something, something, and oh, there he goes, there he goes, and then da 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 what part of Arkansas are you from? Da, 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 da. You know, they just, their the attention span is not great. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You help me. <laughs> no, I love that. Well, and uh, here's another character seems very intent on reliving his youth um, oh, and, yeah. and, and the past and all those bonarobas, right? Which um, <laughs> here is like a... a a rather high class prostitute. Um, yeah. I love all of the names too. Francis Pickbone and Will Squeal and and um, yeah, they're famous for their pigs, aren't they? In Cotswold, yeah. Well, and and there's some there's some uh, thought that anytime there's there's someone with the name Will, that there's some sort of funny reference to Will Shakespeare. Um, oh, um, certainly, okay. and as you like it, uh, William, young William, has there's there's a lot of of uh, puns about the name. 
but yeah, it's it's amazing that these. So all of these things about the Inns of Court, just for those of you listening, the Inns of Court um, was uh, the Clements Inn was an inn of chancery, which trained students for the law. And it was right near the Strand in London. Um, it's a very they're still there to this day. Very, very big, beautiful old buildings. And they're sort of this is where you train uh, for the law. And uh Rhoda, what is your what is your feeling about Shallow's cousin Silence? He's kind of a straight man, I yeah. think. Yeah. You know, he's the ultimate straight man. But I I love that dead sir. Yeah, <laughs> love that. Oh yeah, he's dead. <laughs> I just kept thinking about Barney Fife. You know that character Barney. I, there's just something yeah. very. He is simple. He is down to earth. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. And he gets his own little fun um, moment. Uh, I think it's in act five where he gets rather tipsy and just starts singing on and on, which is really fun moment because he's just been so sort of calm for the whole play. And then all of a sudden he starts singing and everyone's like, where did this come from? Um, which is always a wonderful, uh, fun moment. Um, it's interesting to hear about Falstaff when he was young. It seems very difficult to imagine Falstaff as a young man, but in in Shallow's memory, he was a, a good fighter, and he was a he was a a lad who was up for some good times, and um, and he was the, he was very high up in terms of being a page to Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk who is um, the person who uh, Henry Bolingbroke was having a duel, was supposed to have a duel with at the beginning of Richard II, um, which puts him way up. So he, he, he obviously had um, quite, a, quite a history um, <laughs> during this, this time before he became Sir John with all of Europe. Wonderful. Well, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, Marty. <clears throat> Corrupted. <laughs> yes, corrupted before. before. Drink sack, too much sack. Too many. Yeah, I started mm -hmm. eating and drinking. Too many good times. <laughs> well, wonderful. So we have shallow and silence talking about how much uh, lambs cost and and ox, and talking about how many people they know who have died, and um and then in comes our favorite drunkard Bardolph, who um is going to essentially announce uh, Falstaff's arri imminent arrival. Good morrow, honest gentleman. I beseech you, I wish you just as shallow. Oh, I am Robert Shallow, sir, a poor esquire of this county and one of the king's justices of the peace. What is your good pleasure with me? My captain, sir, commends him to you. My captain, sir, John Falstaff, uh, a tall gentleman by heaven and a most gallant leader. Oh, he greets me well, sir. I knew him a good backswordman. How doth the good knight? May I ask how my lady, his wife, doth? Sir, pardon a soldier is better accommodated than with a wife. 
Oh, it is well said in faith, sir. <laughs> and it is well said indeed, too. B better accommodated. Oh, it is good. Yeah, indeed it is. Good phrases are surely and ever were very commendable. <laughs> accommodated. It comes of uh, accomodo. Very good. A good phrase. Pardon, sir. I have heard the word phrase. You call it. I, 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 by this day, I know not the phrase, but I will maintain the word with my sword to be a soldier-like word, and a word of exceeding good command. By heaven, accommodated. That is when a man is, as they say, accommodated, or when a man is being whereby he may be thought to be. Accommodated, <laughs> which is an excellent thing. Oh, 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 it is very just. Oh, 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 oh. Look, here comes good Sir John. Give me your good hand. Give me your worship's good hand. Oh, by my troth, you look well and bear your years very well. Welcome, good Sir John. I'm glad to see you well, good Master Robert Shallow. Uh, Master Shawcard, as I think? Oh, no, Sir John, it is my cousin Silence in commission with me. A good Master Silence. It well befits you, should be of the peace. <laughs> A good worship is welcome. Fie, this is hot weather, gentlemen. Have you provided me here half a dozen sufficient men? Oh, Mary, have we, sir? Will you sit? Let me see, then. I beseech you. Where's the roll? Where's the roll? Where's the roll? Oh, let me see, let me see. So, 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 so. <laughs> Yay, Mary, sir. Rafe Moldy. Let them appear as I call. Let them do so. Let them do so. Let me see. Where is Moldy? Here, and it plays you. Oh, what think you, Sir John? A good-limbed fellow, young, strong, and of good friends. Is thy name Moldy? Yea, and it please you. Tis the more time thou art used. <laughs> Excellent, Efeith. Things that are moldy lack you. So very singular, good in faith. Well said, Sir John. Very well said. Prick him. I was pricked well enough before, and you could have let me alone. My old dame will be undone now for one to do her husbandry and her drudgery. You need not have pricked me. There are other men fitter to go out than I. Go to, peace, Moldy. You shall go, Moldy. It is time you are spent. Spent? <laughs> oh, peace, fellow, peace. Stand aside. Know you where you are. For the other, Sir John, uh, let me see. Simon Shadow. Nay, Mary, let me have him to sit under. He's like to be a cold soldier. Where's Shadow? Here, sir. 
shadow. Whose son art thou? My mother's son, sir. Thy mother's son? <laughs> like enough in thy father's shadow. So the son of the female is the shadow of the male. It is often so indeed, but not of the father's substance. Do you like him, Sir John? Shadow will serve for summer, uh, prick him. For we have a number of shadows fill up the muster book. Thomas Wart? Where's he? Here, sir. Is thy name Wart? Yea, sir. Thou art a very ragged Wart. Shall I prick him, Sir John? It were superfluous, for his apparel is built upon his back, and the whole frame stands upon pins. Prick him no more. Oh, <laughs> you can do it, sir. You can do it. I commend you well. Francis Feeble. Yes, sir. What trade art thou, Feeble? A uh, woman's tailor, sir. Shall I prick him, sir? You may. But if he had been a man's tailor, he'd have pricked you. <laughs> Oh. Wilt thou make as many holes in an enemy's battle as thou hast done in a woman's petticoat? I will do my good will, sir. You can have no more. Well said, good woman's tailor. Well said, courageous feeble. Thou wilt be as valiant as the wrathful dove, or almost magnanimous mouse. Prick the woman's tailor well, Master Shallow, deep. Master Shallow. <laughs> I would Wart might have gone, sir. I would thou wert a man's tailor, that thou mightest mend him and make him fit to go. I cannot put him to a private soldier. That is the leader of so many thousands. Let that suffice, most forcible feeble. It shall suffice, sir. I am bound to thee, Reverend Feeble. Uh, uh, who is next? Peter Bullcalf of the Green. Well, yeah, Mary, let's see Bullcalf. Here, sir. <clears throat> oh, God, a likely fellow. Come, Bullcalf, and he roar again. Oh, Lord, good, my captain. <clears throat> What's up a roar before thou art pricked? Oh, Lord, sir, I am a diseased man. What disease hast thou? A horse and cold, sir, a cough, sir, which I caught with ringing in the king's affairs upon his coronation date, sir. Come, thou shalt go to the wars in a gown. We will have away thy cold, and I will take such order that thy friends shall ring for thee. Is all, is here all? Oh, here is two more calls than your number. You must have but four here, sir, and so I pray you go in with me to dinner. Come, I will go drink with you, but I cannot carry dinner. I'm glad to see you by my trough, Master Shallow. Oh, Sir John, do you remember since we lay all night in the windmill in St. George's Field? Oh, oh no more of that, Master Shallow. <laughs> oh, twas a merry night. And is Jane Nightwork alive? Oh, she lives, Master Shallow. Oh, she never could away with me. <laughs> never, never. She would always say, 
she could not abide. Oh, by the mess I could anger her to the heart. <laughs> she was then a Bonaroba. <laughs> Doth she hold her own well? Old, old, Master Sallow. Oh, nay, she must be old. She cannot choose but be old. Certain she's old and had Robin Nightwork by old Nightwork before I came to Clement's Inn. Oh, that's 55 years ago. <laughs> oh, cousin Silence, thou hadst seen that, that this night and I have seen. <laughs> oh, Sir John said I well. We have heard the chimes at midnight, Master Stammer. <laughs> that we have, that we have, that we have. In faith, Sir John, we have. Our watchword was him, boys. <laughs> come, let's to dinner, come, let's to dinner. Jesus, the days that we have seen. Come, come. Boy, Sorry, <laughs> Noah, let's pause there for a second and just, just discuss this this uh, this fun little section here. So we had we had Bardolph come in, then Falstaff came in, and then we had our nobody can do maths in this uh, <laughs> in this world. So he said, "Oh yes, there's you need four soldiers, and there's two more here than you can have, but there's five soldiers, so nobody's really doing." Math right, or we're missing another, you know, soldier named Flea Bitten. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but yeah, so Bardolph is holding his own quite well there with uh, with his accommoded, um, which here kind of means furnished or equipped, and it's it's very unclear to me where <laughs> this whole accommodated. Oh, hung. Does that so, mean he's hung? Perhaps. Perhaps he's very well accommodated. Yeah, that, that I mean that makes that makes sense to me. Equipped, furnished, equipped. Yeah. Absolutely. I was wondering if you could say a cockamoded. A cockamoted. <laughs> I guess that would be too much. And then we have this this wonderful um Falstaff entrance were shallow. Oh, you look well. You bear your years very well. I love all that. All that bit. That's just so fun. And then we have this extraordinary shallow. Where's the roll? Where's the roll? Where's the roll? <laughs> let me see. Let me see. Let me see. So, 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 so. It's like I, there's just infinite moments for physical comedy on stage, I think, during this section. And and you know maybe he's holding the roll and turning around looking for it and so he's you know he could be counting people on stage i just think there's just so many different ways to sort of play this and 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 have and have fun with it and then we have our parade of moldy shadowy warty feeble bull calf uh soldiers so so tell me about these these soldiers my friends what are your uh, impressions of, of each one? <laughs> they don't get a whole lot of lines, but... Well, it's just a pain in the neck. I don't yeah. want to be going to no stinking war. Yeah. We don't want no stinking badges. Yeah, <laughs> like very much. Very much. And Moldy's like, he's. it's kind of sweet. I think you can either interpret the my old dame um, to be his wife or actually his mother. 
Right. Um, I think it could be either one. And there, there's something quite, um, quite sweet about, I, I can't leave. I have someone who's depending on me. And she, she'll be, she'll be undone. There's that wonderful un word again. She, she will be undone if I leave and she won't have anyone to help her. And of course, is just like silenced very quickly by Shallow. Like none, none of these people have a choice in the matter. It is, is a little bit sad in that, in that way. These people just get sort of swept up and handed a weapon and then told they have to fight for their king. They have no idea why. And most of them get killed and... They had absolutely no stake in these in these um, wars. Who do they care who the king is? It doesn't affect their lives that much, you know. So it's it is. I always kind of see this scene in in, in sort of two lights. I mean, obviously it's, it's very funny, but it's also to me it's very it's very sad that these these poor people are just you know they're first of all they are very poor. They're very impoverished and they're leading their lives. And then somebody just comes and takes them and pushes them out you know as as Falstaff says in part one they're food for powder food for powder they'll fill a pit as well as another you know they, they they're they're cannon fodder and I, I do think that Shakespeare wouldn't make so much deal over the poor soldiers they wouldn't be such a prominent feature of both plays if he wasn't sort of drawing our attention to them for some reason um, and of course, me with my own politics, I sort of do this kind of like Marxist reading of this and kind of turn this into being about, you know, that all of the aristocracy, it's all about property. They're just defending their property and then they, they ruin lives and destroy lives by pursuing their, the interests of their property. But that's maybe neither here nor there. Anyway, so, th so there was Moldy. And yes, Danny, please. Well, Tell us about also, Ward and Shadow. <laughs> well, they're so afflicted already. You yeah, know, exactly. you're, they're a shadow of a man. They're, they're, war they're feeble. They're like, they just already look so worn out and dejected. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and the two strongest ones, the two strongest <laughs> ones are the ones who are like, I need to get out of here and like not, <laughs> not I'm going to buy out my service here. Um, it does seem like Shakespeare maybe had a book of puns that he really wanted to use. And this scene and this <laughs> midsummer where the fairies are introduced to bottom, he kind of was like, well, if I just name the character, these weird names, then I can make puns about their names. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, I have a good wart pun or like, Ooh, I've got a good moth pun. And yeah, yeah like abs absolutely. I told, Oh, and mustard seed. That'll be a good one. Absolutely agree. Um, they're about to like enlist and kill these guys, and then they're but they're just using them for their own amusement, you know, just making fun of their names and like oh, it's just insult to injury. It's yeah. Like... <laughs> oh, exactly. They're very malnourished. Well, it's what uh, Falstaff says about them in in part one, where he sort of has this extraordinary speech after we see the rebels talking about tactics and. And should they move? Should they not move? Um, what should they venture? And then we cut to a scene of Falstaff talking about how he's essentially conned the draft system. And he went after all of these people that were very wealthy um, because he knew they would buy out their services. And so instead of 150 soldiers, he got 300 pounds. And then he basically filled up uh, by just dragging these poor guys uh, out of prison 
who are all starved and completely malnourished. And there's a mad guy on the road who sees him with these completely malnourished former prisoners and essentially says, oh, you unloaded all the dead bodies and you pressed, you drafted them into service because nobody has seen soldiers this disheveled and malnourished and starving. And in fact, the nobles comment on it and they're like, Falstaff, like, what are you going to do with these guys? They can't even walk. And his response is essentially, you know, an ultimately cynical, they're good enough to toss, you know. And, and, and yeah, you're right, Marty. There is such insult to injury. These poor guys are probably all going to be killed. And what can they do but just pick them on the basis of their name and how punnable it is? It's pretty <laughs> sick. Skipped 15 Smiths to pick these guys. For yeah. yeah. He also has these pretty- will be fun. Frickin' where we have a number of shadows fill up the muster book. I mean, those are people that yeah. are on the pole, but he's getting paid for them. Yeah, exactly. That is that is a wonderful observation that the shadows filling up the muster book are, are really a whole bunch of names he made up. So it's almost like these equally bizarre named people are going to be just at, like, right at home in this book of his <laughs> of, with all the made up names. I was wondering about the. May I ask how my lady's my lady's wife does? Like is, is she, he's asking about <clears throat> Falstaff's wife. Yeah, I think that that is. I think that's a faux pas. I yeah, that's... I think that it's Shadow assuming that Falstaff mm-hmm. is married, but Falstaff is of course our ultimate bachelor. Although he plans on marrying Ursula and Hostess and Dahl and like all these people. Um, so I could see him having several families. Several wives. Yeah. <laughs> A couple families in Canada. You know how it is. Um, yeah, absolutely. This, shall I prick him, sir? Um, this is, is, it's kind of, it's such a visceral sort of image. Um, but essentially it was their way of doing check marks. They would sort of poke a hole in the piece of paper next to the name. It was very much like um, check, 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 check. But then of course, um, pricked also meant, you know, like pricked, like if you prick your finger, which is the joke about the man's tailor. If he was a man's tailor, oh, he'd prick you. But also pricked also meant dressed up or decked out. So. There's the double meaning that he would be pricking you with pins, but also he would be dressing you up. Anyway, so it's like triple, double, triple puns going on here. And then a lot, a lot of uh, L- London lingo. Um, the 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 windmill in St. George's Field was a, an area of South, uh, right around where the Globe Theater would have been that was very well known for its brothels during Shakespeare's time. This would be, called the, uh, as they say in Measure for Measure, the suburbs which I just love that the suburbs equaled the brothels, because I think if you were to tell that to most suburbanites, they would be shocked, shocked, I tell you. But we have these poor guys, and then, of course, they're like, okay, well, our, our, our duty is done, and so now we're, we're going to hop off to, to have some drinkies. And Bardolph is left with these, uh, with these soldiers, two of whom are about to give him some money to not be picked. <laughs> thus giving Falstaff even more money. Uh, we're on page uh, 62 with, with Bullcalf's good master corporate, Bardolph, which is a really fun uh, malapropism for corporal. Corporate Bardolph. I would love to see corporate Bardolph. I feel like he would be a particularly drunk madman type. That would be pretty fun. 
running yeah. cons with false. <laughs> yeah. Good master corporate Bardolf. <clears throat> Stand my friend and here's for Harry ten shillings and French crowns for you. In very truth, sir, I had a leaf be hanged, sir, as go. And yet, for mine own part, sir, I do not care, but rather because I am unwilling and for mine own part have a desire to stay with my friends. Else, sir, I, I did not care for mine own part so much. Well, to stand aside. And good master corporal captain, for my old dame's sake, stand my friend. She has nobody to do anything about her when I am gone. And she is old and cannot help herself. You shall have 40, sir. Go to, stand aside. I care not, a man can die but once. We owe God a death. I'll ne'er bear a base mind, and it be my destiny so, and be it not so. No man's too good to serve his prince, and let it go which way it will. He that dies this year is quit for the next. Well said, thou'rt a good fellow. Faith, I'll bear no base mind. Come, sir, which men shall we I have? Or of which you please. Uh, is there a word with you? I have three pound for free moldy and bullcalf. Oh, go to, well. Uh, come, Sir John, which four will you have? Do you choose for me? Oh, marry then. Moldy, bullcalf, feeble, and shadow. Moldy and bullcalf. For you, moldy, stay home till you are past service. And for your part, bullcalf, grow till you come unto it. I will none of you. Oh, Sir John, Sir John, do not yourself wrong. They are your likeliest men, and I would have you served with the best. Will you tell me, Master Shallow, how to choose a man? Care I for the limbs, the thews, the stature, bulk, and big semblance of a man? Give me the spirit, Master Shallow. Here's what. You see what a ragged appearance it is. We shall charge you and discharge you with the motion of a pewterer's hammer. Come on, often on swifter than he that gibbets on the brewer's bucket. And this same half-faced fellow, Shadow, give me this man. He presents no mark to the enemy. And foeman may with as great aim level at the edge of a penknife. And for a retreat, how swiftly will this feeble the women's tailor run off. Oh, give me the spare men and the spare me the great ones. Put me a caliber into wart and bottle. Hold wart, Trevors. Thus, thus, thus. Come, manage me a caliber. Oh, so very well. Go to, very well, exceeding good. Oh, give me always a little lean, old, chopped, bald shot. Well said in faith, Wart. Thou art a good scab. Hold, there's a testimony. Oh, he is not his craft's master. He does not do it right. I remember at Mile End Green when I lay at Clement's Inn. 
I was then Sir Dagonet in Arthur's show. There was a little quiver fellow and would manage you his piece thus and would about and about and uh, come you in and come you in. Ratata would I say, bounce would I say, and away again would I go and again would I come. I, I never seen such a fellow. These fellows will do well, Master Shallow. God keep you, Master Silent. I will not use many words with you. <laughs> Fare you well, gentlemen, both. I thank you. I must a dozen miles tonight. Bardolph, give the soldier's coat. Oh, Sir John, the Lord bless you. God prosper your affairs. God send us peace. At your return, visit our house. Let our old acquaintance be renewed. Peradventure, I will with ye to the court. For God, would you would? Oh, do I have spoken a word? God keep you. Fare you well, gentle gentlemen. Uh, on, Bardolph, lead the men away. As I return, I will fetch off these justices. I do see the bottom of justice shallow. Lord, Lord, how subject we old men are to this vice of lying. The same starved justice has done nothing but prate to me of the wildness of his youth and the feats he hath done about Turnbull Street and, the, and every third word a lie. Do have paid to the hearer than the Turk's tribute. I do remember him, Clement in, like a man made after supper of a cheese pairing. When he was naked, he was for all the world like a forked radish with a head fantastically carved upon it with a knife. And was so forlorn that his dimensions to any sick sight were invisible and was the very genius of famine, yet lecherous as a monkey. And the whores called him Mandrake <laughs> and came ever in the rearward of the fashion and sung those tunes to the overscutching housewives that he heard that he heard the carmen whistle and swore they were his fancy or his good nights. And now as this vice's dagger come a squire and talks as familiarly of John of Gaunt as if he had been sworn brother to him. Now be sworn and never saw him but once in the tilt yard. And then he burst his head for crowding among the marshal's men. I saw it and told John Agont he beat his own name, for you might have thrust him and all his apparel into an eel skin. The case of a treble hot boy was a mansion for him a court, and now has he land and beef. Well, I'll be acquainted with him if I return, and shall go hard. I'll make him a philosopher's two stones to me. If the young dace be a bait for the old pike, I see no reason in the law of nature, but I may snap at him till time shape and there an end. Very nice. Wow. Quite a uh, final speech you got there, Marty. It is. <laughs> yeah. I love the, just because I always love bringing Harry Potter up. This is the same philosopher's stone. <laughs> Um, uh, like the Sorcerer's Stone, right? Um, that gives 
that has the it gives eternal youth and turns base metal into gold. So I love that he's talking about both of those things here. And his his uh, his characterization of, of Shallow and how he remembers Shallow is quite interesting. He lies. Um, that he's just a liar. That he's he just lies. He yeah. lies. I was not like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, perhaps he misremembered. <laughs> I, uh, I think we all remember our glory days and a little brighter sheen than <laughs> perhaps they actually were. <laughs> Yes. Um, I One of my favorite lines in this whole scene is the, oh, give me the spare men and spare me the great ones. It's just such a great line. Um, it's sort of like you're a pox of this gout or a gout of this pox. Um, there's just a wonderful architecture to that to that line that's, that's just really fun. I love this little feeble. It's so sweet. Who's just like... I think we shouldn't buy out our services. I'm trying to figure out like what, how old this person is. Is yeah. he really? I'm try I was also like trying to wrap my head around like what's actually happening, like the staging of it. Like, are they in front of a drafting table? And then yeah. where did they come from? Like what you said, they came from prison. Is that a thing or is that? Well, like um, these guys are probably farmers and just villagers okay. um probably the the urban recruit recruits would be coming out of the prisons and then these are the country recruits so probably most of them are coming from the farms and from um from the little villages so you're the probably a, a young tailor who's just been drafted um, like still kind of shiny a little yeah, shiny yeah yeah i think a little shiny you're definitely the one who, ha who seems to have the most integrity of the bunch of, of the five soldiers and sort of like, well, I'm trying to make the best of this situation, but I reckon, you know, like there's something very like kind of yeah. sweet about, about Feeble. And I love that everyone calls him Courageous Feeble and the Magnanimous Mouse. He said I, was, mouse. I would work had gone. Is that, is that, is he saying actually I, he... I wish, wish that Wart were coming with us. I think. Oh, okay, got it. Okay. And then Wart does come come uh, with us because we lose Bullcalf and Moldy because they buy out their services. So right. in the end, it's um, it's it's who is it? Wart, Feeble, and Shadow who um who are our recruits from this particular slice of the Midlands. <laughs> First time going to war, probably. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and I love that, like, Bardolph isn't in charge of, like, instructing them in how to use their weapon. And he's just like, thus, thus, thus. And that's like, combat training for the day. <laughs> like, <laughs> good luck. Tomorrow you'll be in a battle. I get so many, like, Baldric vibes from all of these like, young soldiers. Yes! Play. Like, yes! really strong Blackadder comedy kind of thing happening in a lot of these, these little scenes. Oh yeah, you're half expecting one of them to say, "My father was a nun." One of my favorite Baldrick lines of all time. And then Blackadder says, "No, he wasn't." And Baldrick said, "I he was so I know because every time he went to court, the judge would say occupation, and he'd say nun." One of my ultimate favorite jokes. I just oh, I love it. Oh, and then I forgot to mention there's a wonderful, the, the Falstaff, we've heard the chimes at midnight. Um, 
Yeah. It's a, a very famous line sort of immortalized by Orson Welles in his film, uh, The Chimes at Midnight, which sort of seeks to take all the Falstaff scenes and turn them into one film. Um, and many people consider it to be um, his finest film. In fact, he himself said that if I were to get into, the, into heaven on the merits of one film, it would be The Chimes at Midnight, which I think is just... Mm -hmm really quite sweet um considering that he also directed citizen kane but anyway i was thinking the <clears throat> both in the, the act two and with pistol and now here with shallow it's like Falstaff compared to like the part one really takes a back seat to these yes like they're introduced i keep getting the idea that they're like trying out new comic characters and uh, I... you know until the end it's like where, where Falstaff finally owns the stage with his um, soliloquy. It's, you know, before then, he's, he's really sort of playing second fiddle to these folks. It is interesting. I, I quite like that idea of yours, Marty, that they're, that it's like, let's try and see who sticks. Like, who's going to... It's almost like dual... Who's going to make it to Henry the V? Uh, I, I, I totally agree. Well, Pistol's going to make it to, to Henry V. He's going to be a, a quite a big part of um, Henry V. But then he he um, he he has some competition with the wonderful Welsh captain Flewellyn, who is like the second largest character in Henry V and uh, is, is quite amazing and and is obsessed with the Romans. But yeah, this is it's, it's quite a different scene than we've seen so far. We're, we're in the countryside. It's probably, you know, to quote Dylan Morin, it's always wet, even when it's dry. Right. I, I, yeah. Can I ask you on page 64? Yeah. Uh, I think I think what he's saying, though I'm not entirely yeah. sure, is that um, Falstaff isn't choosing them the right way. Yes. That he remembers this little fellow in this show, and he was really good, and he was brave, and he would... I don't, he would shout and he would yeah. uh, bang, bounce. Uh, and then he would come back. I shall never see such a fellow. I mean, yeah, I think he just goes off in one of his little memories. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think he's okay. remembering that there was a, there was this fellow in the, this, apparently this little play that he was in, yeah. a play about King Arthur because Sir Dagonet was, was uh, King Arthur's fool, which ah. is wonderful that Shallow right. was playing the fool role. Um, and then um, there was this little, very quick uh, fellow who would who would wield his sort of little piece of artillery, and he would turn about, and he just did it very well. And I think you're saying I will never see another person do it as well as he did. I think yeah. at the ends there, and 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 same same with old double, you know, at the be at the beginning that oh I'll never see someone who could shoot an arrow like old double. Um, with all okay. of these, these very, um, archaic archery, uh, archaic archery language about, oh, he could shoot this very small target from 14, 14 and a half feet away with, and it was a longbow and gives us all the details about the, the arrow that he would shoot with. And then has this, this also wonderful, I love the line when he asks about this, this, um, prostitute that they knew a very long time ago oh how is she doing and Falstaff's <laughs> like she's very old <laughs> and um 
And Shella's response is, oh, she must be old. She cannot choose but be old, which I just quite love as a, as a response. I think it's just, it's really charming. But yeah, this, this seems to be a, more of a peaceful act than act, act two with its brawls and et cetera's. But yeah, any, any other thoughts on, on act three? It's our, it's sort of our little interlude I had a question, Ari, uh, mm-hmm. actually relating to Richard II. Mm-hmm. Um, you brought up Mowbray, and I just wanted to ask, because it's always seemed a little, I don't know, unmotivated for Richard, his stopping of the duel multiple mm-hmm. times, and then his leading into his banishment of the knights, other than his sensitivity to the violence. I just, what what conclusions were drawn on that? Because I, I had a thought relating to Falstaff being Mowbray's page. That he was, that's that's funny. That That is why his buffoonery, if he was introduced, and, and it's not in the text, but he was introduced yeah. in that scene. He was so buffoonish that that's why the oh, that's hilarious. kept getting stopped and then they both got banished because he was being such an ass. Basically, the conclusion that we came up with is it, it can't go well for Richard if either one of them wins. If Bolingbroke wins, it means he was right, and Mowbray is a very, very veiled accusation at Richard. So if Bolingbroke were to beat Mowbray, it would essentially say that he was right and that Richard caused the death of his uncle. If Mowbray beats Bolingbroke, um, Bolingbroke is his cousin, and it doesn't look good that he didn't step in and have his... So there was just really no good political outcome for Richard in in that scene. Pretty much that, that makes much more sense than Falstaff just being <laughs> introduced wordlessly as this giant ass and getting everyone finished. But. That would be really... I do like the thought of... Somehow I really like the thought of, of Falstaff as part of King Richard's court because there's not a lot of comic relief in Richard II. It would be really nice if we, if we got some. But um, yeah, no, I, like I, think, I think it was little... political. <laughs> Little Falstaff. Yeah. So we're we're left with this this promise on Falstaff's part that he is going to return if if he survives the wars and con these wealthy country justices out of a, a huge amount of money, um, which is his prerogative. And so we're gonna we're gonna meet up with these justices at the very beginning of Act Five, and they're all gonna have a nice, fun celebration and lots of drinking and. A silent singing. Um, any any final thoughts on Act Three? I imagine so much of the humor of it comes in in the uh, staging of it and oh, the yeah. like reactions to Shallow and what he's saying. I imagine like these big pauses where like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know. So um, okay, let's move on. Um, and and the training of battle training and all that just. Uh, Oh, and I think the 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 just silent presence of these soldiers that I think have to look just so beat up from the moment they come on stage as well. The costume, you know, like these are your likeliest men. I think always will elicit a bit of a laugh. (laughs) Like these are our most promising five young recruits. You can only have four of them. (laughs) Which will you choose? Um, And then you end up taking three, (laughs) which is like. Nobody can count. So, so that is Act Three, and then we we move back to the rebels and the political upheavals in Act Four, um, in a different in a different kind of warfare. 